Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that I have been kind of starting to try and do at work is a little bit of agitation because we found out they're not giving us automatic raises mm. uh, anymore. And that's one of the things I'm immediately talking about with some of my coworkers is just immediately the way that that freight was phrased, the automatic raises. I'm like, you mean cost of living increases? Because yeah. the whole thing, the argument is, well, you know, people need to show that they've earned a raise to justify paying them more. And I'm like, you, what did anybody have to do to earn inflation? Like, yeah. if the money is less, then it's not about a raise. It's about staving off a pay cut. And so that's been pretty effective with the couple of people I've talked about it with so far. So. Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine. It's not too hard to start doing the math and think like, oh, okay, so five years from now, this reasonably good job is actually going to be a pretty fucking shitty job if we don't right. get our quote unquote automatic raises. Yeah, well, especially because like the... the because what are they they what they're by getting rid of that they're instating an automatic pay cut yes <laughs> well, that, and that that's the thing it's been i've been explaining that to people and they've gotten a lot of you know i never thought about it that way but you know you're right <laughs> i'm like yeah i know but uh <laughs> well money it's easy to think like everybody talks about inflation and then you know it's pretty easy to go about your day just thinking like well a dollar's a dollar mm -hmm. love a dollar yeah but I've tried to explain it to people just using even just like realistic numbers. I'm like, look, if when you started the job, your mm -hmm. cost of living was $35,000 a year or whatever. And when you f and your next year, that same stuff is $37,000 and they didn't raise your pay. They robbed you of $2,000 mm -hmm. because they said they were going to pay you X amount. And that amount only has any meaning if it converts into things you can use. Because if it's just a fucking piece of paper with a number on it, that's not very fucking useful. So I'm like, if the equivalent of commodities has gone down, you are getting less stuff, so they are paying you less. <laughs> well, and it's also like, you know, where does the fucking money go? If they're paying you less, but the company is making more money year over year, which they almost all of them that stay alive almost always mm -hmm. do... <laughs> where's the money you know it's right. not that hard to figure out once exactly. you establish all of the actors and mm -hmm. the motivations yeah so so we'll see the the agitation has begun <laughs> hell yeah uh hopefully at some point i'll be reaching out to the opeiu but that's uh maybe a long ways off <laughs> hell yeah i love opio i love that like mid-era kind of dubstep people think it's cheesy <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, there's a lot of good bass work in there, and they got really into the kind of FM synthesis sound that was lacking in some of the earlier kind of CCRU adjacent stuff like Code 9. Anyway, this has been your dubstep corner with John. Now I'm um, just tr <laughs> trying to imagine what sort of a cover band would come out of like people who are very active in the office and professional employees international union. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Like Honestly, uh, I kind of thought... It, actually... Well, well, Here's the thing, yes. though. Like, <laughs> I've met a, quite a few office workers filling up vending machines, and I don't think it's that outrageous to imagine that they might go to such a drug rug themed event as an opio concert, <laughs> or however you say Fair. that stupid fucking dubstep guy's <laughs> name. <laughs> oh yeah, I guess that's true because you know it's like the escapism and go like mm -hmm. what's the extreme thing that's still palatable. Mm -hmm. yeah. I knew the guy that I knew that worked at Starbucks to leave to to work an office job was a drug dealer who went specifically to EDM festivals. So just saying, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> oh man! All right. Well, uh, on that note. <laughs>
My name is John. I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And the show is called Work Stoppage. We're entirely listener supported. So support us on Patreon if you can. It's where all of our bonus material lives. Hop in the Discord if you're not in there already. Message me on Patreon if you need stickers. And leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you go to dubstep concerts. <laughs> yeah, I I was just a Matt. You said where our, our overtime content lives is like how comfy i bet you know the accommodations are are pretty decent there you know it's kind of like the conversation people have when they're like you know how what's it like for the pokemon inside the pokeball (laughs) and i have to imagine based on some of the early pokemon comics that you can look up online that they have like furniture and televisions and stuff in there well i I think you just think about it for all of our air conditioning is on and their favorite song is playing well for, for all of our listeners who have seen or read JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, <laughs> specifically yes. season five when they're in Italy, if people mm-hmm. remember the turtle, I basically think of it that way. And for everybody yeah. who has no idea what I'm talking about, you should watch JoJo. It's a fun show. <laughs> also, the thing about mentioning JoJo's and then being like, I think the Italian turtle is a good metaphor for Pokemon <laughs> is actually one of the least crazy things you can say about that show. <laughs> And it makes total sense if you've seen it. <laughs> so, you know, now we'll dive right into your favorite anime review podcast that you have right. said. <laughs> no, but this week we're starting off with uh, going over a few quick headlines that deserve uh, at least a little bit of mentioning. Uh, and, uh, first off, you got to mention the uh, great innovations by the uh, awesome and wonderful profession, one of our favorites, <laughs> union busting. Mm. Uh, yes. Yeah, sound good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, specifically at Starbucks corporate, because as reported by Dave Jamison at the Huffington Post this week, the company announced that they're going to be holding a North American Barista Championship, where partners <laughs> can compete for a trip to Costa Rica. Okay, well, whatever. I, when I worked there, I got asked if I wanted to participate in this, and I didn't have like a lot of class consciousness or anything, but I just can. St- I had a good ability to just smell some bullshit, and I was like, no, <laughs> not competing in some fucking barista contest. Why don't you go fuck yourself? Well, and I mean, even then, there is uh, a little bit of a catch. Uh, similar with other things that they have rolled out, uh, they have denied any unionized baristas the ability to compete in this, once again lying and claiming that they can't give union workers any new benefits. And, I mean, as the NLRB has ruled multiple times, this is absolutely not true, (sighs) and somehow they just keep pulling out this same bullshit line in order to just be petty and cruel. Yeah, and also, not to be a broken record, but illegal. It's illegal to do this. So, like, I don't know, jail. Put them in jail. (laughs) Like, come on. (laughs) It's it's just one of those things that I think it's not so much that this creates a new frustration with, say, the NLRB for us, because I think, like, we kind of understand what the NLRB is at this point. I think, you know, when you see this sort of continued impunity where like not only are they breaking the law, but the the folks ostensibly responsible for enforcing said law have in fact multiple times confirmed that they are in fact breaking said law. And they continue to break that same law over and over again in the exact same way with literally no punishment. It's not so much that I'm just like, we need to make our society more carceral and and, and lock up the entire Starbucks board, although that might be a good start. But like, <laughs> the I think the issue really is that it gets, it, it eats away at what is functionally the core uh, ideological premise 
behind liberalism, but nobody in any sort of position of power acknowledges that. And what I mean by that is, you know, you talk about people who are just like, well, I'm believing law and order. And if, you know, it's not just the 90% of those people who just mean I love fascism, which is what most of them mean when they say that, you will get the occasional person who's just like, look, the law has to apply the same way to everyone. That's the only way society works. And that is kind of the fundamental tenet behind how liberal society is supposed to function. And this is the sort of thing that makes that impossible, but it's never talked about that way. They only talk about, you know, organized shoplifting gangs and, and, and all these other <laughs> bullshit things that they invent to justify more police, that that is, you know, the source of all the disorder, chaos, and, and, and lack of validity in the social contract in our society. But really what it is, if people want to look at, you know, oh, why don't people have faith in the American system? Because it's constructed to allow stuff like this. When you see mm -hmm. that Starbucks is able to just, be, like, not just break the law, but basically mock everybody in the country while doing it, why would anyone believe that anything about that system is fair or worth, like, following any of those rules? And, it, it, and yet, this is so obvious, and yet everybody pretends that that's not happening, that this is just some isolated mm -hmm. thing. It's a different kind of law-breaking. It's, it's an okay form. It's fine. We can just ignore it, as opposed to all the other stuff that actually doesn't actually hurt anyone but gets slapped with these horrific carceral penalties. Yeah, plus organized shoplifting gangs are cool. That's how I got all the limited edition Starbucks mugs for next to nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, while we're talking about Starbucks and a lack of faith in the legal system, we have to continue our report on Starbucks with an administrative law judge who ruled that the organizer, Jazz Brizak, who was illegally forced out of her store in Buffalo, uh, must be reinstated, uh, must be reinstated by the company. And I mean, this ruling is pretty welcome, but also it comes after a year since she was forced to resign. And also it can still be appealed. And so in the meantime, I mean, Brizak has taken a position at Workers United to help organize hundreds of workers at other stores. But I mean, I actually don't know about this. Is she getting reinstated at Starbucks or? So I believe the intent from reading the article, like I, I believe the intent is that, you know, sh she would keep her position at Workers United, but be rehired part time again at the store that she was illegally fired from. And, and they're appealing so that they can possibly fire her again. I mean, probably. I'm sure they would try <laughs> to do something like that. But I do appreciate, no, that like, because plenty of folks who've been illegally fired in this sort of a situation by Starbucks have been forced to get other jobs and in some cases been like, well, this job is actually good and so I don't want to go back to Starbucks. And obviously, Brizak is a great organizer. I mean, she's done a lot of great work with work Workers United. Um, so I'm sure that she could just continue to be an organizer for a union that's been pretty fucking successful <laughs> uh, over the last few years. But I also appreciate the fact that 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 they are, you know, like... No, it doesn't matter that she has another job. You broke the fucking law. You have to give her her job back, and we're going to hold you to that shit whether you try and get out of it one way or another. Because it's like it's one of those things where simultaneously it can show the futility of the legal system, but it is still important that the union shows that they're willing to fight even in this broken bullshit system for whatever the workers deserve. And so I do think Well, and that if they didn't... I mean, if they didn't, I think it's important to note that uh, this would never happen. Right, exactly. So, yeah, it's fucked. But um, 
In addition to you know all of Starbucks's innovations in bullshit uh, this week, uh, which seems to be the only real innovation that they put out these days, uh, Amazon has also continued to ramp up its repression against its workers as well. Because uh, you know uh, Justine Medina, who we've talked about before, one of the organizers who was involved on the ground with uh, you know forming the ALU and and having their you know historic victory at the JFK eight warehouse in Staten Island. Uh, and almost two years ago now, I guess. Uh-huh. Uh, and obviously, April you know, 1st, I think it'll be two years. Yeah, and, you know, Amazon continues to uh, avoid bargaining, uh, clearly a violation of the requirement to bargain in good faith, although that one hasn't made it into court yet, I don't think. Uh, but now they are continuing to ramp up their campaign of harassment against workers at JFK 8, where um, uh, Justine Medina had reported on Twitter that... Amazon has begun firing workers for f- plugging in their phones at work. And now to be clear, that's not plugging their phones into something to pull, you know, data off, like transfer it onto your phone or to like mm-hmm. use your phone while you're working, which I think is fine. But of course, you know, the boss is going to be like, no, you have to pay attention to boxing up stuff in a warehouse, which frankly probably doesn't give you a lot of time to use your phone anyway. But no, this is just for plugging in your phone to charge it. And they're firing people for that. <laughs> I mean, that's some shit like where they would say, I don't even know like what the justification is. Like you're not allowed to use your phone at work. So why would you need a charge? Or like you're stealing the company's electricity or like <laughs> what, what harebrained nonsense could this possibly be? You know? Yeah. I, I mean, I would imagine it's probably a policy about where you can bring your phone and it's, mm. and, and so they're just like, Oh, well you charging it. There is evidence that you brought your phone a place you're not supposed to be. So you broke company <laughs> policy. So you're fired. Which is just ridiculous. And, and and obviously, of course, really ultimately, you know, the reason they're using such a flimsy excuse for this sort of thing is to give them cover to go after people who are vocal supporters of the union. I mean, obviously, right. we see this sort of thing all the time. Not this exact modus, but just the constant use of incredibly flimsy pretenses to be like, no, we didn't fire this person for organizing. We fired them because they broke a policy that we created specifically so we could use it as a justification to fire people for organizing. Yeah, we caught them breathing and drinking water between 2 and 3 p.m. Right, you know, right. Like- <laughs> no, exactly. And I mean, like, even if you go back to examples from the series that we're, we're doing uh, on, on Overtime about, you know, uh, the history of, of organizing among women workers in the trade union movement, you had all those like garment factories that would fine or fire workers for talking to their neighbors or like looking out the window (laughs) and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So it's like, this is as a really long history of companies setting up these policies that basically are just like, Oh, it's a universal policy that I put in place just so I would have an arbitrary excuse to fire anybody I want for any reason. And so, um, I think ultimately, really, one of the things that this does emphasize uh, beyond just the obvious that, like, the labor law system is not enforced uh, ever in favor of the workers uh, by the state itself, but it's that, that like, while it is so incredibly frustrating, you know, that the the, the workers have not been able to secure a first contract, it, it really underlines how important that contract is because it's only in places that we see workers with a contract and therefore the ability to enforce it on their own where we've been able to see, you know, workers really fight back against this. Now that of course doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have gone through the full NLRB process, but it's, it's that forming of the ability of the workers to hold the bosses accountable. And so 
I really, I think that ultimately that really underlines why it's so important, you know, that we support movements like the ALU and the fight to unionize workers at Amazon, because until some workers at Amazon have a contract, they're going to just keep doing all of this shit. Yeah. And it'll be really good when they do get a contract to also set the example of mm-hmm. uh, what the union can win. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in some other major union news, there's going to be a shakeup at the top of one of the largest unions in the country. As this week, Mary Kay Henry, president of the SEIU for nearly 14 years, will not seek reelection. Under her tenure, the union has been more aggressive in new or in new organizing than many other major U.S. unions and has launched campaigns like Fight for 15 and supported the explosive Starbucks Workers United movement. So thank you for your service. Mary Kay Henry, 07, salute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know we don't usually talk about like necessarily uh, I- I- these sorts of internal union shakeups, but like Mary Kay Henry has been the head of one of the biggest, you know, unions in yeah. the US for several years. So I figured this was a pretty important story to mention because like I mean, we may have the, you know, a criticism here or there of certain aspects of the SEIU, but you can't deny that they've had a dedication to organizing that really mm-hmm. exceeds a lot of other unions. And they've been willing to put resources into that. And it's shown like with developments of, of movements like Workers United in these last sure. few years. And even, you know, the pressure they've put in California to get better laws for fast food workers. So mm-hmm. I, I think, yeah, it's 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 been quite a 14 year tenure for Mary Kay Henry and it'll be and and you know the succession process there at at for you know electing and choosing a new uh president will definitely be impactful with the uh you know size scale and and scope of the work that SEIU does. Yeah, it'll be interesting cuz with an organization like SEIU, we don't necessarily need to see a big upset kind of like reform slate to see someone come in who is like really militant and who is like really driven to continue these kinds of organizing activities because like while like you say we might have some criticisms of the seiu like it's very easy to do those kinds of things just as a continuation of their past activities yeah yeah no exactly like uh there's i'm sure any union can be more democratic like there's always things you can any organ not even just a union really any organization but Mm -hmm. like yeah we've seen i think you know at least there seems to be more receptiveness at least you know transmission Mm -hmm. of of ideas between the rank now the rank and file on top now we're not none of us are seiu members so can't necessarily speak to that but i I do think it's worth noting you know like again mary Kay henry's like tenure has seen a huge growth in the union and 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 Mm -hmm. some pretty huge uh movements especially because obviously fight for 15 that 15 number is a little out of date now Right, But it is movements like that that have led to things like the creation of the Union of Southern Service Workers, as well as, as you know, now there's the new fast food councils that have just started to be formed in uh, California to theoretically create sectoral bargaining. Now, I have a lot of questions about how that's really going to play out, but it's a it's a really interesting experiment. And, and it wouldn't have been possible without the organizing of the, the workers in the SEIU. Absolutely. And moving on to someone whose tenure we hope doesn't last 14 years. We want to have a quick follow-up to our discussions of the attempt by Argentina's new wannabe dictator president to gut labor rights, which has been fought off for the moment. So after a massive general strike and multiple days of major working class mobilization, the government was forced to withdraw the bill. Funny how that works. 
Factions within the Argentine ruling class apparently worried that pushing forward such massive attacks on workers' rights at once would jeopardize their ability to stay in power and push forward the rest of their agenda. Wow, there really are people left in the Argentinian government who, while they still have terrible politics, actually understand how things work a little bit. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Unfortunately, yes. (laughs) Yeah, so workers will remain vigilant as the attacks from the Millet government will assuredly return, but this does constitute a major victory and shows that mass worker power gets the goods and also shows that, like... You know, when faced with significant enough fascism and strong enough worker attacks, even a successful colonial project like Argentina can mobilize their working class fast enough to really achieve some fucking change. Hint, hint, wink, wink, my fellow Americans. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And I mean, on that note, that really kind of translates right into our next story here, because... Mm To, uh, to do our weekly update here on workers fighting back against the genocide in Palestine and the complicity of our, uh, frankly, extremely evil government, um, well, that movement does continue to grow and hit uh, another major milestone this week. Because, you know, we had talked last week about uh, the AFT and, 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 and several other giant unions in the U.S. finally joining the call for a ceasefire. And this week, you kind of had the, the really the last one of those because the AFL-CIO, the actual, you know, federation itself, came out on Thursday, February 9th and joined the call for a ceasefire, although in about the most tepid way that they could. Their statement was uh, basically what you would expect from the AFL-CIO. Uh, it was very short uh, and, and not particularly... Uh, politically astute, Uh, (laughs) and I can just read it. It just said, quote, the AFL-CIO condemns the attacks by Hamas on October 7th and calls for a negotiated ceasefire in Gaza, including the immediate release of all hostages and provision of desperately needed shelter, food, medicine, and other humanitarian assistance to Gazans and reaffirms our support of a two-state solution for long-term peace and security, end quote. It's so telling that these organizations feel like they have to condemn the attacks by Hamas on October 7th, right at the beginning of the statement. Let's just get that out of the way. Uh, because also, it's like, not mention Palest- Palestinians. Like, yeah, I know, they- just Gazans. They always just say Gazans because they want to like try and act like this is a geographical mm-hmm. conflict and not a ethno-national religious conflict, which is what it actually is in in many dimensions, you know? Yeah, and so, like, it's not a great statement, but that being said, I don't want to be annoying ultra-left sour grapes person. <laughs> uh, I do. And, and, and want to try and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, look at this reasonably. And and I do think it's important to mention, not just to, to shit on them for, like, not having a better statement, uh, mm-hmm. b- because I think it's it's really indicative of how far the movement has come in just a few months because getting the AFL-CIO to even make this statement is an enormous shift from the AFL's position relative to U.S. imperialism for its entire existence, basically. Well, 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think if uh, people have compared it to how long it took to turn public opinion and get some institutions to change their stance on the war in Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of, I think, in some respects, like too long ago to necessarily be an always useful comparison. But I think it is kind of interesting. And maybe it's the internet, maybe it's class consciousness, maybe it's, you know, more anti-imperial consciousness, whatever. But like, we have managed to turn public opinion against this genocide in occupied Palestine in like something to the order of like a thousand percent faster mm-hmm. than we've seen in comparable conflicts throughout American history. And I think that's like, that really says something important. Now it doesn't really do anything to help the people who have already been killed, who have already lost their families, who have already, you know, whatever. So sometimes it feels a little gross to sit here and kind of play this, this numbers game, but like, I don't know, in order to be effective, it's important to remember that like that tide of public opinion is prevailing. Like the mm-hmm. uni- the US government and the Israeli government are wildly unpopular right now for their activities. And we can't let that go. Yeah, well, and I I I, I yeah, I, I understand what how people get frustrated. I I a hundred percent do. But I think it's important to note these things and note them as successes because mm-hmm. Unfortunately, like from the position of the working class, this that's how change has to work for us. Like we don't get to short circuit the process of quickly enacting societal change because we have to organize all of us. Like we don't have mercenary armies to defend us and go out there and crack skulls when we do things because like we have our goal is to run society for everyone. And that in and of itself makes our organizing different than the way that the bourgeoisie, you know, goes around changing the world. They they just drop bombs on people and do all that shit. We're trying to organize millions to create, you know, a society based on, like, you know, justice, <laughs> things like that. And so it, unfortunately, these sorts of processes, like you said, I mean, you can compare it to Vietnam, but you could compare it to apartheid South Africa. And, like, mm-hmm. is it too slow for the people who have already died? Yes, but it's also the only way that the working class can make change. Like the, the idea that there's some other perfect tactic that like we're going to come up with that's going to crack the code and end the thing immediately is an illusion. Like I wish right. it wasn't. I wish there was a, a button that we could like see, hidden in a secret vault that we that would deactivate all the U.S. weapons or something and just make them not work and it would just stop everything immediately. But like the people that are working on that and that actually have the ability to impact that sort of thing are in Yemen and they're doing it and salute to them. But like it, from our perspective here in the U S this is, you know, the process of social change that we're going under. And considering the fact that the AFL CIO for decades during the cold war was an arm of U S imperialism, it actively mm-hmm. worked to undermine and overthrow left-wing governments all over Latin America, but also in places like, you know, Africa and, and, and even in South Korea. So like to then have the shift come this far where even the AFL CIO after a few months and tens of thousands dead has come to the perspective of like, Oh, we have, we have to call for a ceasefire because if we don't, then all of the other rank and file workers who made the member unions of the AFL CIO put out their own ceasefire statements. They're not going to see us as legitimate anymore. And so the fact that that shift has happened in just a few months, exactly to your point, shows just how, you know, powerful I think the rank and file within demand within the labor movement is to, to demand a ceasefire. And so that's where I think we, we have to view this as a positive. And so 
Uh, what one other positive this week that I think may have some of the more immediate effects that people uh, would certainly like to see would, is that we do actually have boycott successes to d- to discuss this week, which is because I know sometimes people get demoralized about the effectiveness of boycotts too, but. Over the last few weeks, both McDonald's and Starbucks, two of the biggest corporations in the world, have both missed sales targets. Uh, McDonald's Mm -hmm. missed their first sales target in four years after huge drops in sales, largely in the global south, since October. Uh, The company Uh, I did that too. I've been at Burger King getting the classic chicken sandwich, the long one. (laughs) McDonald's can't touch that long sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) And. Well, and because, again, part of the reason behind the the specific boycott of McDonald's is that McDonald's franchises in Israel, and I believe they always want to do the, oh, it's the franchises, ignore the fact that they're all called McDonald's. It's like, it's the same way they use franchising as like a shield against Mm -hmm. employment law here in the U.S. They try to do it for the responsibility for any of the actions of franchises in other countries. But there have been McDonald's franchises in Israel that have been providing free meals to the IOF since October 7th. And that's a big reason why they've been a target of boycott for directly supporting the ongoing, you know, uh, second Nakba. Uh, and, and Starbucks also announced a major hit uh, after uh, huge boycotts in the global South as well due to their open support for uh, the Israeli apartheid regime. So uh, definitely good to see people's boycotts making a real impact. Um, and one other, one last thing I did want to mention on workers taking action for Palestine is that student workers took action this past week at Cornell and uh, CUNY, which is uh, what, City University of New York, um, mm-hmm. I believe, uh, where students held die-ins at both places to demand that administrators divest from companies profiting from apartheid and from genocide. And so I thought it would be good if we could just uh, read uh, CUNY's statement because it's not that long and I thought it was uh, really good. Um, So CUNY for Palestine posts on February 8th, CUNY students and workers across eight campuses are sitting in and walking out to demand divestment now. And then they have posted an image of their statement here, which reads, we are CUNY students and workers standing in the tradition of the anti-apartheid and anti-colonial movements that came before us. On February 8th, we are using our power as students and workers to sit in and walk out on our campuses, demanding CUNY divest now as part of the National Day of Action for Divestment. We reiterate our existing demands for CUNY to immediately divest from all companies that enable or profit from Israel's genocide, apartheid, colonization, and war crimes against the Palestinian people. This includes divestment from weapons manufacturers creating profits for CUNY through participation in Israel's genocide in Gaza, Boeing, General Electric, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Raytheon. And that's the full text of their statement. Yeah. And I think these are really good for two primary reasons. One, direct, immediate, actionable demands, which is always good because Mm -hmm. it helps you hold the people you're targeting accountable when they try and be like, oh, we we see you, we hear you, we're going to do this thing you didn't ask for. See, we did what you wanted. If you have specific demands, you can be like, no, you didn't. We had demands. You didn't do what we said. So that's really important. And two... I know sometimes maybe people think die-ins are overdramatic, but die-ins are incredibly inconvenient for people who want to move through the space that you're doing them in. And frankly, one of we, as we've talked about with other forms of protest, you know, if you have these people that are still refusing after four months and 30,000 dead to do anything about it, then one of the most important things we can do is make those people's lives suck. 
Like, mm-hmm. they, if we can make, if we can inconvenience them in any way, the people that have the power to make some small amount here, that's a step forward. And so I think this sort of thing is really good and, and really wanted to shout these folks out. Yeah. And while these are just a couple of stories that have happened this past week, I think that it's also really important to mention that there are so many other actions happening. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in our discord, there's constantly an update on so many of these actions that are happening. So I assume a lot of people are in the discord, but if you're not, there's a pretty good updated feed on what all is going on. So uh, stay informed by joining the discord. But in our next, I just want to make one real quick shout out, shout out to the, uh, the Brown students who are uh, here in Providence over the last week have been on a hunger strike to demand Brown divest as well. I uh, just want to shout them out. Hell yeah, yeah, hell yeah. But uh, in our next set of stories, we have to do our weekly checkup on the UAW this time. Mm-hmm. Because as the UAW has continued its post-strike organizing surge, this week there is a flurry of news stories. On Tuesday, February 6th, as reported by Josh Idelson of Bloomberg, the union reached a key milestone at the VW plant in Chattanooga where a majority of workers have signed cards. The total workforce there is about 4,000 people, so that means that over 2,000 workers have signed cards in just a few months. And and in a country with fair laws, that would mean they now have an officially recognized union. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, we do live in the United States. That's right. (laughs) But as the union laid out, they were, when they launched this historic organizing drive at the non-union automaker, at non-union automakers around the country, 50% is a key threshold for a drive, and now their efforts will ramp up with a major ra- with a major rally at the plant in the works. Uh, once the workers reach a total of 70% of the workers there at the Chattanooga plant having signed up, the union will file for an election, and that will require them getting just 800 more workers on board, which should be fairly, uh, you know, I don't want to call it easy, but, you know, a process that is attainable as they have already gotten so many people on board and gotten more organized, more organizers, presumably from some of those uh, people that they've been organizing. Mm-hmm. And as part of the solidarity effort, the UAW put out a video this week from workers organizing at other non-union plants like Mercedes and Rivian, who wanted to reach out to VW workers in Chattanooga, Tennessee, to support them and encourage them to keep pushing their victory. And we have a couple of the words from them here. Hey Volkswagen, my name is Moesha Chandler. I'm currently an assembly worker at Mercedes-Benz in Plant 2. I've been watching you guys grow your support and I must say that I'm excited how far you guys have come. Hi Volkswagen, this is Tom Miller at Rivian. I just want to let you know you guys are leading the charge for us. I'm really proud of you. It's time to take life into your own hands and make it what you want. My name is Stacy Whitehurst here in Montgomery, Alabama at Hyundai Motor Manufacturing. I'm just here to tell you guys there at Volkswagen. Congratulations. Hey, I'm Jeremy Kimbrell down at the Mercedes plant. I just want to tell y'all good Volkswagen workers up in Chattanooga. Go ahead and let the boss know time's up on taking advantage of the workers. Hi, I'm Cochelle Diggins from Montgomery, Alabama from the Hyundai plant. I just want to say to Volkswagen, you guys are trailblazers. Keep pushing, keep striving, and we'll see you at the top. And so it's really good to see all of that solidarity coming out from workers around the country who are just excited for this drive and also are doing their own drives, which, I mean, I think is super important. And I know that 
when I was doing, uh, when I was part of a drive, hearing from some of the other union workers or even people fighting for unions was really encouraging. Uh, and honestly, that optimism is pretty necessary because organizing is fucking hard. Yeah, I I, I love this this video, this this uh, strategy by by the UAW because. Like exactly like you said, it's like organizing is a is is difficult on its own, and it's also one of those things where obviously one of the bo- things the boss is always trying to do is make you feel as isolated as possible. That you are like that that no, it's just this little this little tiny group of the more militant people who are the malcontents. Everybody else was fine until the drive started happening. So I think like being able to have like. Yeah, it's not like, yeah, you know the 2,000 of your coworkers are with you there, but it's not just you. It's like there are, are workers doing the exact same thing, and, and and not only that they are doing it, but they know about your drive. They're inspired by the drive that you're doing, the successes that you have, and they're right behind you the whole way. Like, I, And I also think it's, it's not just good for that specific drive, but ultimately what this sort of outreach is doing is really just emphasizing the whole – idea behind what a union is because what it's it's really leaning on is like would you like to have some solidarity as a part of your you know employment you know the thing you're going to do for the majority of your time before you die uh mm-hmm. like because it's it's something that's so absent you know from u.s society more broadly that i think leaning on that it's like not only do you have these folks who specifically support this drive but like that solidarity is something that is really baked into being in a union in the first place well, and hopefully the, you know, interstate solidarity then also leads people to think, oh, having solidarity for people in other places is a very good thing. And then that ends up going towards an international solidarity. Exactly. But, I mean, while these workers are very uh, ha- uh, happy to support their fellow workers, there are people that do not support the workers, despite their words. VW says that they respect the workers' right to organize. And so they have done the wonderful thing of partnering with union-busting firm Center for Union Facts to put up <laughs> billboards around town linking to an anti-union website with all sorts of anti-union talking points and i mean with only 20 percent of the workforce to go before an election uh it seems like they might be a little bit late on this one yeah every time i hear one of those names like center for union facts i just like the phrase teach the controversy flashes <laughs> across my mind <laughs> no 100 that's exactly what it, it's it's they all run the exact same playbook that was written specifically for the tobacco industry. Mm-hmm. It, and they're all structured identically to intelligent design foundations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, ugh, it's awful. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, meanwhile, while the rapid pace of organizing by auto workers has clearly spooked a lot of the bosses, that same union-busting firm launching billboards in Chattanooga has also announced a big investment in the anti-union campaign uh, on Austin to try to convince Tesla workers that they uh, should continue their exploitation under Elon Musk, launching the website UAWUncovered.com, a new anti-union website, to try to fight against the organizers. Drive. The <laughs> website rehashes some of the same classic anti-union talking points, but also tries to attack Sean Fain specifically on broken promises because the new Big Three contract didn't secure a four-day work week and pensions for all. And I just like 
there, uh, it's so frustrating to see like critiques or internal like discussion that happen and then that be wielded against the workers because I mean obviously it would be very nice to have a four-day work week and pensions for all though uh it's really missing the forest for the trees there with uh all of the major victories that they actually did win and the promises they did fulfill well yeah it's like so easy to to needle the union about any little fucking thing meanwhile like the company just wants to be able to skate on every single thing they've ever fucking failed to do and the laundry list is surely very long but i'd also be curious to see in particular how the union busting campaign attempts go in austin of all places like you know i can only imagine the union buster like hello fellow workers uh it's so good to be down here uh you guys know sean fain's a liar right not like that elon he's a cool guy and i'm definitely not him (laughs) yeah well and i mean the thing with this that is so frustrating i mean there's a there's a million things but it's like first off it starts from the premise that auto workers are stupid because they're basically trying to say you mean they went into a negotiation and they made all these demands at the beginning of the negotiation and they didn't get every single one that they demanded. That's how every negotiation I've seen has gone where one side comes in, demands everything, and they just get everything that they immediately said from the outset. Why would that ever change? It must be because the leadership is like, everybody knows how haggling works, like that you come in high knowing that you're going to come down a little bit. And that's one of the things with militancy is you come in really fucking high because you're Mm -hmm. just like, yeah, I'm probably not going to get this, but we're going to fight for this shit eventually. So we're going to put it on the goddamn board so people start talking about it. (laughs) That does not mean that not getting the 32-hour work week was just because Sean Fain went to the negotiating table and was like, oh, this doesn't really matter. (laughs) Like, they're acting like people have never, don't know what what bargaining is. (laughs) Well, and it's also like it just kind of like plucks the situation out of its historical context entirely. Like, look what happened under this administration compared to what the union was able to achieve before. And this is on a footing where I would be the first one to tell you, even with the previous administration, you'd be better off in the UAW than not. 100% unequivocally. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. like. Well, and, and then the, the, the other thing, though, that I do want to point out, and I do, I do, I do think one thing that can be um, uh, good that this is a good example of mm-hmm. is a way that democracy union democracy is extremely important because I don't think this is going to be a particularly effective tactic. And a big part of the reason why is because as we saw during the stand-up strike debate over the contracts and I, and some of the contracts were kind of close. Like I think that the GM one only passed by what, like 65%, I think, but we saw that debate was open and that that debate was encouraged by the leadership. And so members were able to debate about it. And some of those debates certainly got heated. But I really didn't see that that much in the way, at least that really made it to the mainstream, of people then turning it around into this item that I wanted in the contract for good reasons didn't make it in there. Therefore, the union leadership hates us or like isn't fighting for us or some sort of thing like that where you start to identify the leadership as the problem. Like, for instance, in a case where that really was an issue under Jimmy Hoffa Jr. with the Teamsters, where he undemocratically forced through a contract nobody wanted. And that created a lot of very justified acrimony in that organization. Whereas in this case, you know, the contract was brought to everybody. It was, oh, they said, look, it's your contract. 
you debate it. If you don't like it, vote against it, and we'll go back out on the picket line. And it, there was, it was never trying to force this on anybody. And that's why I don't think this, this, this is going to be effective. But I do think it illustrates why it's so important that when we have our debates within our unions, within our organizations, we also understand that it's like, ultimately, at the end of the day, our ultimate enemy here is the boss. Right. And so, like, we have our heated discussions. We may have very strong disagreements, but we have to remember at the end of the day, like, our enemy is not our coworker. Like, our enemy is the boss exploiting us. And and because, you know, the UAW has made so many democratic reforms, they become, they've empowered the rank and file so much more. I don't really think that this sort of, oh, the broken promises of the Fein regime, <laughs> this sort of bullshit, I don't really think that's going to land very well. To well, and especially with Tesla workers, because it's like, who has broken more promises than Elon Musk? I well, don't think anybody. Yeah. <laughs> There's zero people alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be, well, uh, what about Joseph Robinette Biden? Mm, damn. Contender, a- but I'm still going to say probably Elon. <laughs> Top I don't two. know. He just runs his mouth more than Biden. I think that's the determining factor. But Biden's <laughs> been a politician for like 70,000 years. But Elon Musk is South African. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Biden said he like went to prison with Nelson Mandela. So <laughs> Elon Musk is a tech guy, though. Lion <laughs> is like drinking water to them. All right. All right. All right. Well, disagree. Gonna- yeah. <laughs> But I mean, just to to continue our story, I think our, yeah. our yeah our our coverage of the UAW. I think that it's also important while we're talking about the victories of the stand up strike to talk a little bit like we talked about. I believe it was either last week or the week before where we talked about the profit sharing checks mm-hmm. at GM. Well, this time we're going to be talking about Ford, where the workers will be receiving a ten thousand dollar profit sharing check, which also I mean just another example of of how much more they could be paid because uh, mm-hmm. this is not going to interrupt business even the slightest and mm-hmm. this represents an increase of over a thousand dollars over last year and the temps th- that are at the company are actually eligible for the profit sharing for the first time as a result of this new contract so not only Hell is yeah. it full-time workers which i mean obviously temp workers they have the the uh, what is it the um they're going through the process of becoming full-time workers. They have a, a guaranteed mm-hmm. path and all of that. So it's also not the same kind of work as temp work would have previously been. Yeah, no, more, no more being a temp for six years, just yeah. 90 days. Mm-hmm. And, but they're they're eligible for profit sharing for the first time, which is awesome. I mean, mm-hmm. just... I, I can't take these critiques of the uh, quote-unquote broken promises seriously, and <laughs> right? I don't think anyone should. Yeah, it's goofy. Yeah, I mean it's ridiculous. And and like I do think that it's also key to note that it's like that these victories are not just having an impact, you know, in specifically auto work. Because we're seeing new UAW locals pop up all over the place in in the wake of the stand-up strike. Like uh like this past week on on Wednesday, February 7th, Grad students and postdoc workers at Caltech announced their victorious union election. Workers voted a combined uh, 1,039 to 296 in favor of joining the UAW in two uh, bargaining units, one for postdocs and one for uh, uh, grad student workers. Caltech tried to fight the union, hiring a union-busting law firm and arguing in classic fashion that our campus culture provides workers with representation, making a union <laughs> unnecessary. Well, I have a quick question. Is Caltech a private university? Yes. Okay, I was, I was like... 
If it was a public university and they're hiring a union-busting law firm, <laughs> well, well, well uh, I, I wouldn't be too surprised about that sort of thing, unfortunately. I also have a question. What's the standardized grievance procedure in a campus culture? <laughs> uh, what was that app they had going around for a really long time that was like next door, but for when you're on at college? Next door, mm. but for when you're on drugs? That's called Eroid. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I uh, I don't know. Clear clearly that uh that line of argument did did not really work. <laughs> because mm-hmm, with a huge victory. Yeah, absolutely. So we love to see that. But also I did want to mention um this week that we also saw a another UAW organizing effort. This time the staff of the Nighthawk Cinema in Brooklyn, which is a like dine-in premium chain kind of similar to the Alamo Draft House, if people are 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 aware of that one. And so the workers there Obviously, since society, you know, reopened in the quote unquote post COVID continuance of the pandemic, we've seen especially service workers get absolutely slammed uh, by an enormous surge in demand. And last year, uh, during the Barbenheimer weekend, when both Barbie and Oppenheimer came out at the same weekend, the massive crush in work. Uh, ended up pushing a ton of people to organize, want to organize for better conditions. Um, so Elena Moskowitz, a, a server at the Nighthawk, told Alex Press in an article for Jacobin that, quote, it was a really tumultuous time. A lot of people were overworked and a physical altercation happened in the kitchen because we were so understaffed, end quote. She also noted that during the intense rush, workers were actually collapsing from exhaustion and lack of sleep due to the extended hours of operation and the breakneck pace of work, which, I'm sorry, if you run a a movie theater and you are pushing your workers so hard and refusing to hire enough that they are collapsing from exhaustion, I think you should just be banned from being in charge of anything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I can I can imagine a situation, because, I mean, I've seen understaffed places where the tensions are raised because of it, that it would end up escalating to something like that. But it should not happen. And mm-hmm. if it does, well, that is an indictment of the leadership or of the fucking company. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's like if this happened in, like, China or Vietnam, they would just take your business license away. Correct. Right? <laughs> like, yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, and so... And this is all, again, this is in Brooklyn. This is in New York City. Mm-hmm. And they're rushing people at this pace of work while workers are starting at only $11 an hour. In Which Brooklyn? Like, yeah, in New York. You couldn't live in someone's yard for $11 an hour in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, I was shocked by that because I'm just like, you can't pay people $11 an hour here in Rhode Island. You couldn't pay people $11 <laughs> an hour in rural Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Ridiculous. And while I do believe, you know, that servers are tipped and so I'm, I'm sure they end up making, you know, more th- mm-hmm. often than the $11 an hour, especially during these extreme crushes, that does not justify starting paying people at an unsustainably low rate. Like the tipped wage is an abomination and should have been replaced with like the end of child labor, which also we found out didn't actually end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the other thing is that only full-time workers get health insurance. So many of the workers there who are part-time end up in the situation where they have to choose between going to a doctor and paying rent. And so like so many other people in this country, they just don't ever get to go get any health care, which just makes anything that happens that much worse. But one of the things that I really loved from the article, and a lot of people have quoted this, this, this line too, uh, was that 
you know, the workers who, who talked with, with Alex Press mentioned that they had heard about the organizing efforts by workers at nearby Alamo Drafthouse locations. And so one of the, the, the workers, the Nighthawk, just went over to go talk to them, uh, introducing themselves. We've also been victimized by Barbenheimer. <laughs> Which I, I just love the, you know, the commiseration of like, hey, we're also getting screwed over and we hear you guys found a cool way to avoid that. Can you teach us how to do that? <laughs> Hell yeah. I love that. That's what, a really good reason to have a lot of like uh, public attention on a union drive. Mm -hmm. And one of the other things that they mentioned, you know, as part of their tactics was they made a specific point that from the outset, they wanted to unify front of house workers and back of house workers. And because obviously when we talk about like unionizing restaurants and food, any place with food service, that's always one of the, the wedges that the boss tries to, to drive between workers to try and make like the cooks. No, that's a separate thing. You're not in the same group as the servers. They're different and you don't have the same interests and you shouldn't unionize with them and potentially get better wages for all of you. That would be bad. No, yeah, servers are from Mars, and cooks are <laughs> right. from Venus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, see, the cooks play their music by putting their phone in the metal bin this way, mm -hmm. but and the servers put it in a, like, a different way. <laughs> and it's indie like. rock, yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, there was an intentional focus here on, on not allowing the, you know, the bosses to separate front and back of house. And that does seem to have paid off so far. You know, the only non-managerial staff not included in the bargaining unit are projectionists whose work is very specialized and is largely separated. Now, obviously, you'd prefer to have a full wall-to-wall -wall union, but uh, this has the vast majority of the staff involved in the bargaining unit. And so far, announcing their launch, they already have 70% of the staff on board with the union effort. So Hell yeah. And so on Wednesday of this past week, they presented management with a request for voluntary recognition, which was promptly denied, uh, unsurprisingly. And so well, the workers are filing for a election. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, it being promptly declined is uh, an improvement from so many <laughs> other companies. That, that mm -hmm. is true. That is true. There's usually just the ghost response to try and fuck you over. Uh -huh. um, but, you know... The workers said, uh, announcing their their drive and, and speaking with Alex Press, that that their goal, obviously low pay, is at the top of the list of priorities for a new contract, since how the fuck are you supposed to afford to live in New York City on a wage like that? It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And so in addition, obviously, you know, they're going to push to extend things like health insurance to all workers and not just full-time. But now the workers are going to be pushing forward with their election to join the UAW and really get the respect and job security that they deserve. And the fact that they've already got 70% of the staff and considering how understaffed they are and these horrible conditions, I think there's a pretty, pretty good shot for these folks to become, uh, you know, yet another new, new group that the UAW is expanding into. Hell yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, for our next story, we go to America's unkempt backyard, uh, Florida, where we are unfortunately seeing a horrendous assault on Florida public sector workers decertifying 30 bargaining units in four months. So nine months ago on episode 152, we discussed the passing of a bill in Florida aimed at destroying the state's public unions. This leverages the Janus versus Ask Me ruling where the Supreme Court decreed that all public workers in the U.S. operate under quote unquote right to work conditions where workers who benefit from a union's collective bargaining may not be forced to pay due 
dues to actually win those benefits. The new law banned automatic dues checkoff and initiated immediate decertification proceedings for any union which fell below 60% of members paying dues, a death knell for many unions in the state. And now, Mm -hmm. almost a year later, the effects are being felt in devastating ways. And so a report from the Orlando Weekly shows that since the law took effect in January, quote, at least 30 public bargaining units for city, university, and non-instructional school employees were decertified by the state. End quote. These decertifications happened automatically and with no notice. Workers interviewed by the Orlando Weekly said that they weren't even told their union had been decertified. Those unions which have been decertified by the state are overwhelmingly ask me locals of municipal employees. Yeah, this shit is just so. There's so many of these laws <laughs> that they're passing, like this shit, the criminalizing of bail funds mm-hmm. in Georgia, the laws that cities and towns can't pass their own worker regulations, their own minimum wage. That no, you you can't make things better. Like it's they're not even pretending that these laws are to help anyone. That's, I think, Mm -hmm. one of the things that starts to break my brain a little bit with these things, where, like, the malice behind the law is just Mm -hmm. open and part of it, which is, I think, one of the things that, to me, is, like, so marked about this particular phase of fascism that we're in. This is why why it's so important to keep your finger a little bit on the pulse of British politics and industry because they've been pioneering this just open disdain for the people they're legislating for a lot longer than we have and when we pass laws like this in the united states i'm like oh i see we've put on our powdered fucking wigs for the <laughs> afternoon yeah <you> know? <laughs> it's just so brazen yeah it's it's real like uh everything is shitty but nothing should get better things right. should only get worse kind of yeah. hours you know Uh, Yeah, so the new law, uh, SB 256, is functioning exactly as the Supreme Court hoped when they made their Janus ruling. So while the bill allows unions a month to appeal a recertification and file to show that they have at least 60% of their members paying dues, the Janus ruling and massive state propaganda against unions, combined with a severe lack of education on labor rights, has led to some locals only reaching 10% of their members paying the dues. Now that their unions have been lost, their collective bargaining agreements no longer apply and cities can begin slashing away at pay and working conditions for the workers who keep vital city services going. So on your next trip to Florida, whether you're heading to Miami or Key Largo or Boca Raton, there might be a little bit more trash in the fucking street mm-hmm. and a little bit less well-kept fucking parks than you remember the last time you were there. And yeah, uh, my- there's, on- <laughs> there's only one organization to blame for that, and it's the Florida State Legislature mm-hmm. <laughs> or yeah. Also the Supreme Court, I guess. Yeah. And my favorite part of this is that they have a month to appeal, but they receive no notification of the decertification. Mm-hmm. Well, it, yeah, it's, it's it's like the opening to uh, a Hitchhiker's Guide where Arthur Dent's house is about to be demolished. And he only knows about this because he had to go to the city hall and go into a part of the basement where the steps weren't there anymore and find a dusty old file cabinet where his file was buried deep inside. And that was how he was provided notice, you know? Well, it's just also just so it's so frustrating and it shows the truly insidious nature of like what right to work laws are meant to do, mm-hmm. which is undermine like any understanding of like what a union does because it's forcing a union to provide benefits without membership. And so like, for instance, like, cause they talk about like, there is all these locals that only had 10% of members paying dues. And so people may think, oh wow, the union must not have been doing stuff for folks. And I mean, there may very well be valid criticisms of these unions leaderships, very 
very possible. But the core there, ultimately, the whole thing is like the workers had a good or a decent, you know, contract that gave them a much better situation than workers without a union. But they didn't have to pay anything for it. So, you know, they just get it automatically. And it just seems like that's just part of the job. And obviously, any union does their best to try and, you know, educate around that. Mm -hmm. But at this, if you're getting all the benefits and you don't have to be personally invested in it, it's real easy to convince people that, like, this won't affect you. You already got all this stuff. What do you, you don't even have, it. they don't need, you get all these benefits. You don't have to pay anything for them. The union doesn't, do, what do you even need the union for? It'll go away and everything will be the same, which of course mm -hmm. isn't true because, you, you know, let's look at the working conditions for these people in one, two, three, five years and see how the fact that they're probably going to be exactly the same as they are now, if not actively getting worse, which is much more likely. But by the time that's happened, now, if you want the union back, it's not an automatic process. It's not a card check process. You have to go through, jump through all the hard fucking hoops again that are already stacking the deck against you, making it so it's not really that you need a majority of the workers to be in favor of the union. You need like three quarters of them to bash mm -hmm. through all the bullshit that companies and, and cities and, and, and towns that are openly anti-union are able to throw at people. And it's just, I, I just hate our ruling class so much. <laughs> Justifiably yeah, well, so. Speaking to the education angle, uh, in particular, we have not seen teachers unions affected by these decertification purges yet. Maybe because they have such good communication skills. Who knows? Um, but the teachers were the main target of the bill, as fascist lawmakers wished to destroy teachers unions as part of their plan to privatize all education, <coughs> Betsy DeVos, and mm -hmm. require white supremacist curricula. I could just say Betsy DeVos again, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, or, <laughs> literally, there is a, there's already a test case for this. Look at New Orleans. They yep. did this after Hurricane Katrina. They've already done it. They want to apply that exact same model to everywhere else, and they are actively trying to do it and this bill is a part of that right mm -hmm. but so far teachers unions have also been some of the most mobilized and engaged and have had an easier time clearing the 60 percent dues paying threshold than other unions also why 60 percent <laughs> well uh folks who listened to our episode last year when we talked about this bill will know but they they ran a study to figure out what is the average membership of unions and it was like 59%. And so they're like, we'll put the threshold at 60 to automatically decertify as many unions as we possibly. It, it was an arbitrary number that they drew up to just try and decertify as many. They constructed the law intentionally to decertify as many unions as possible. Right. Yeah, Even they, though, like, assuming this law had any merit at all, which it doesn't, right. that number would be 50 or 49%. It, and so the way they get around that legally is they say that, oh, no, the 60% threshold doesn't automatically decertify the union because the union can reply and say, no, we do have the people and can apply for a card check or I don't know. I don't think it's a card check election, but for an election to prove that the workers do want the union and they are willing to pay for it. But obviously, that's an incredibly onerous fucking process, even if you do have a majority worker support. It's just bullshit. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Games rigged, folks. Yeah, well, I was going to say it's designed like a casino, you know, it's set up with like McKinsey kind of like casino kind of um, mentality. But yeah, so one of the issues we saw is that many teachers union locals did fall below the threshold and now wait to see when the state will try to decertify them. 
In the meantime, the Florida Education Association has focused on mobilizing members to appeal the ruling and show high enough dues paying membership, but they're facing a massive propaganda war. A think tank called the Freedom Foundation. <laughs> the fucking ah, name. Okay. Um, <laughs> the Freedom Foundation. Has the set Foundation up a, for Defense of Democracies. The what Foundation for Shitting My Pants Loudly with a bald <laughs> eagle screaming in the background um, has set up a fake union, the Miami Dade Education Coalition, which is not actually a collective bargaining organization at all, which is what a union is, and has sent mailers to teachers telling them to stop paying dues and join the fake union, a tried and true tactic we've talked about. In our modern news episodes, in our historical retrospective episodes, it's all over the fucking place. Um, Uh. So while it is likely that many of those workers who have benefited from a union contract but refuse to pay dues will come to understand their mistake in time, it will probably be too late by that point. Several unions have sued, claiming that the law is unconstitutional, but the legal system really only removes labor rights. It doesn't... uh, You can ask it to protect them or add them on, but like... Uphill battle really doesn't start to... Mm-hmm. More like Sisyphean. Um, yeah. So, as Dr. Rich Templin of the Florida AFL-CIO toward the, told the Orlando Weekly, quote, It was never about providing transparency for workers. It was never about, you know, sticking up for our public sector workers. It was always about eliminating their ability and their constitutional right to collectively bargain, end quote. Mm-hmm. And, That's very uh, true. Yeah, I mean, pretty smart guy. No wonder he's a doctor. my only thing there would be like you know doc i'm really glad that you understand that that's what the republican lawmakers are doing i just wish you understood that that's also what the democratic lawmakers are doing yeah Uh i don't know people in uh states like florida where like the republicans are so noxious and like really really it's hard for them to understand sometimes that the democrats are also like not their friends you know well and especially because like in a in an area where the democrats don't really try that hard to take power like you get right. folks who will get elected who are actually marginally better because they're not challenging the ultimately the core structure of the Democratic Party because they're in a state where they're never expected to actually be in power. Well, and also, why would the Democrats ever try to take power in Florida? They like that the Republicans are in power mm. there because it's where all of their vacation homes are. <laughs> and the Republicans treat them really good behind closed doors, just not on TV. Also, yeah. it's good to have that bludgeon. You don't want to end up like Florida, right. do you? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There are kids starving in Boca Raton. Yeah, it's uh, the same reason <laughs> the Dems never actually codified Roe v. Wade. It was too valuable to them as, a, as something to dangle right. out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. This well, is where real politics gets you, folks. <laughs> yeah. Well, while we're talking about teachers, we can move to a, I guess, a, a slightly different situation. Uh, we're going to be moving up to Chicago, where on Tuesday morning, February 6th, 60 teachers who are represented by the CTU, or the Chicago Teachers Union, went on strike at two charter schools operated by the Instituto de Progreso Latino. In a press release, the teachers say they are, quote, fed up with the school's lack of resources and rampant mismanagement, end quote. Not surprising for a charter school. Yeah, when have we ever heard of that in the charter mm -hmm. system? Every time, I think. Uh, (laughs) The two schools, Instituto uh, Health and Science Career Academy and Instituto Justice Leadership Academy are charters run on a contract with the city. And these sorts of public-private partnerships have been lauded by liberals as the, quote, solution to education, which... 
What I'm I don't even know how to comment on that. Well, yeah, you uh, don't need to solve education, but also anytime people say there's a solution to something, it gives big time Arbit mocked fray vibes. Well, yeah, I, I always just want to point this out because I feel like a lot of people think that the war on teachers is a uh, is a Republican only thing. And I, I assume that's because folks don't remember the Obama administration <laughs> uh, because Obama was like one of the most anti-teachers union presidents like we have ever had. Like, I mean, he mm -hmm. was personally screening that Waiting for Superman movie, which was a movie made entirely to attack teachers unions and promote like charter schools and the privatization of education as the only solution to like raising education standards for like inner city youth. And a big part of what people forget about Michelle Obama's whole like healthy food um, in schools kind of initiative was that it was positioned as kind of an attack on teachers and families in many ways and really didn't call school administrators into question in any kind of meaningful way, which I always thought was weird. They were always trying to be like, we need better like community drives to make sure that our children are eating right. And it's like, no, you just need to upgrade the food in the cafeteria. It's not fucking yeah. complicated. Like... <laughs> Yeah, well, and I mean to the talk about the the charter school uh, issue. I mean, the there's decades of data that show that charter schools exacerbate existing disparities in distribution of education resources by race and class, mm -hmm. making it so that uh, people who are not white end up getting worse or just less education. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, poorer people end up falling into that category as well. They mm -hmm. make the problem of better education for the rich and worse education for the poor even worse as it already is in addition to the just the immorality of it uh, in its own right of profiting off of something that every human needs like education mm -hmm. yeah, yeah exactly. i mean they want to return to the point where like you basically have to have a position of enough status in society that you are even allowed to understand like math and physics and reading right. like the era of medieval scholarship but the jokes on them because that's how we got karl marx <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, the last those... great medieval scholar. <laughs> what about Grover Fur? Oh yeah, he's actually technically a, a, he is a medieval scholar. scholar. He gives me a proper headache most of the time. Is yes, my assessment same. of Grover Fur. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the schools have faced severe teacher shortages due to their refusal to pay fair wages. As reported by the Chicago Tribune, the entire special education staff quit at the beginning of the school year due to compensation simply being too low to live on in the Chicago area. Other core classes, such as English, science, and math, have also had unfilled positions, meaning students are often not really taught as much as they are just warehoused in the building, mm -hmm. making schools even more like prisons than they already are. Uh, the Spanish teacher, Eva Arcentales, uh, said in a press release, quote, our students are not learning, and also they are not prepared for college. This is not fair for our community, end quote. And yeah, the like w when I was reading this and they're like, they're not paying the special education teachers. I'm like, that's fucking bullshit. That is a good reason to strike. And, and there are so many, you know, school districts around the country that don't pay proper resources for their special education teachers. I'm, this is a really good way to highlight that. And they're like, they also don't have enough teachers for science and math and basically any other course. I'm like, wait. How, what? <laughs> yeah, what are you? Are you guys sitting around watching fucking Veggie Tales all goddamn day? Like, is this even a school? 
I know that that was exactly my response. I'm like, how do you call this a school? Like, well, yeah, well, we bring in the kids. Oh, so they go, they go to classes. They have like a, a, a like a, a schedule through the day. They go to like English and math and science. Well, no, they don't so much do all of that, but they're here all day. I mean, well, so I that's mean, they, that's what a school is like. Well, because because that's the thing. You're like you don't have math, you don't have science, you don't have English, you don't have the special education resources you need for the kids that need them. You're not running a school. You right. are committing fraud. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure that they do move from room to room. You know, you, they go to the room labeled English. It's just the only thing in there is a workbook and uh, and someone sitting there making sure that a fight doesn't break out. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, like. With the charter school administration refusing to provide basic services for students, the CTU has called them out for mismanaging their funds. Instituto pockets a full 25% of their contract with the city in rent and exorbitant management fees while refusing to pay teachers livable wages to enable them to even provide the baseline standard of education that they claim to be able to do so much better than the public schools. Mm. Clearly, that, that's just a, a line that's full of shit. And while negotiations had continued through the week, the uh, Instituto had refused to agree to basic terms like living wages. And, I mean, as usual, administrators have attacked the striking teachers, accusing them of depriving students of education. But as CTU President Stacey Davis-Gates said, quote, "...for people who are taking a day of docked pay... That means people love this space. They are willing to throw down to save this space, end quote. Mm-hmm. I also love the terminology of throw down. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, Stacey Davis-Gates is, you know, one of the more outspoken. I, we, 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 we obviously love the CTU on this show um, as one of the more militant teachers unions in the U.S. who are consistently fighting, you know, for some of the more underprivileged, like, kids underprivileged i even hate that term but intentionally underserved kids really is Mm -hmm. is, is a better way to phrase that but i just want to like point out the absolute gall of the instituto administrators to claim it's the teachers that are depriving the students of education by striking and not the company that refused to pay enough money to hire english science and math teachers in the fucking first place right (laughs) yeah it's absolutely absurd but, I mean, on Sunday, uh, just, I guess, yesterday for us, February 11th, the union announced that they'd reached a tentative agreement and will suspend the strike while the members review and vote on whether to ratify the deal. Per a statement by the CTU, quote, Chicago Teachers Union members at Instituto del Progreso Latino reached a tentative agreement with management that forces the charter school operator to put students first. The tentative agreement, won by educators, will significantly increase resources and staffing for special education, help recruit and retain bilingual staff, and allow students to access additional supports, including a librarian, school nurse, counselors, and social workers, end quote. That list... uh, is an indictment of what was happening before this. Yeah, like, it is simultaneously a huge win that the CTU came out and in less than a week uh, on strike was able to force the school to hire librarians, school nurses, counselors, and social workers. Like, that, winning, those are big victories. And at the same time, as you said, it is absolutely fucking ludicrous that they had to go on strike to, to get the company to hire those people and more ludicrous that a, that this charter school company continued to maintain a license while not providing those services without a school nurse or a librarian yeah. without a fucking math class. 
<laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I, I could see maybe you give him a daycare license, but not a license yeah. to run a school. Right? Ugh. CTU rocks. This is the thing. This is yet another example. It's like, just like the Newton teachers, this is how workers can actually enforce social change and actually hold people accountable. It's like, it's this, it's, it, it's, it, this is why unions are so important because again, politicians are all on in both parties. They fucking love charter schools. They love privatizing education. It's only the workers and, you know, and our allies in the working class, in the community coming together that force changes like this. So hell yeah, CTU. But And uh, let's talk about uh, changes in, I guess, <laughs> similar, I mean, education still, right? <laughs> I mean, sort of. Uh, only in the weird way that the United States ties education to quasi-professional and really ultimately very much professional sports because, mm-hmm. and this is a, I figured this was a good story to close with on the episode we're recording the day after the Super Bowl. But, uh, you know, we've talked a few times on the show about how labor rights of student athletes in the U S uh, basically don't exist. Oh, the really? Super Bowl. That's why there were no chicken wings at the store. Yes, that is exactly <laughs> why there were no chicken wings at the store. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, there have been, and we've talked about a couple, you know, serious attempts by student athletes to break out of the false designation of them as amateurs that has propped up the NCAA's theft of their labor for its entire existence and instead reclaim even just a small fraction of the billions, literally billions of dollars made entirely from their labor. I don't get how amateurs is a good defense there as if the (laughs) being amateurs, even if that was the case, would mean that they shouldn't get anything other than tuition. Well, and also, like, the distinction between amateur and professional is whether or not you get paid. That's the <laughs> distinction, 100%. So when oh, you don't okay. pay them and then you say we shouldn't pay them because you're amateurs, that's the circular pay. logic. It makes <laughs> zero sense on its face. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I mean, it's like... Uh, it, And so, exactly, it, it's it's completely absurd. And so... We're finally seeing some progress on this because the most recent attempt to secure labor rights for workers and even just a fraction of their labor, which is stolen from them, uh, has been by the Dartmouth men's basketball team, where back in September, the team petitioned the NLRB to allow them to hold an election to join the SEIU. Uh, And on Monday, February 5th, the NLRB ruled that the team is, in fact, eligible for a union and that the school must hold an election. Hell yeah. <laughs> Get wrecked. And and so if the workers win and every member of the team signed the petition to the NLRB, they would be the first officially recognized union of players in the NCAA ever. Hell yeah. And uh, I imagine not the only one for very long. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> at, at least, at the very least, in the Ivy League. And the reason I mention the Ivy League is that uh, there's a legal distinction here that between this drive by Dartmouth and some of the other drives in the past. Like, for instance, uh, one of the other more recent attempts was by the Northwestern football team several years ago where they petitioned uh, to be able to unionize. That ran into problems with appeals and getting caught up with the board and the fact that I think they filed during the Trump administration when the NLRB was shittier. And so that ended up not working. But a, a part of the justification for the board not allowing them to get a union was that Northwestern, which is, I believe, in the Big Ten, um, that that league has a mixture of private universities and public universities. And because private universities are regulated by the NLRB and therefore the NLRB can say, yes, you can unionize, but 
public universities are, of course, and the, their workers are thus regulated by uh, state law. And therefore, the NLRB cannot say that all of the students at these state-run schools could unionize and that therefore mm. that would create a disadvantage and an unstable labor market within the Big Ten and, and the NCAA more broadly. And the difference here is that Dartmouth is in the Ivy League and all of the schools in the Ivy League are, of course, private. So it right. is by making this ruling, it applies to all of the teams in the Ivy League, creating a level playing field. Interesting. It'll also be interesting to see what uh, unionizing does to the win rates of teams. <laughs> I have to imagine it will improve them, but I guess I can't make that prediction with a lot of confidence because we don't have a lot of data for this kind of stuff. No, <laughs> it'll be very interesting to see. Um, and so, you know, because for decades, reactionaries have have tried to justify the NCAA's uh arrangement of mass wage theft uh, that they've been running for the, the last several decades uh, that, you know, that again, that they're, that they're amateurs and that, that rather than being employees of the school, they're voluntarily doing this labor in exchange for an education, which I'm like, that's already a transactional relationship and not voluntary. But <laughs> the thing is, is that these arguments have lost, you know, their power more and more and more over the years. And the conversation has really shifted in the public on this as more and more people have seen the disparity between the billions and billions of dollars brought in during March Madness and the college football playoff and the severe poverty that many of the student athletes end up living under. Uh, and, and, and not just during their college days, but also can end up with after college if they, like the vast majority of student athletes, don't make it to the pros. Because the value of that education that they're supposedly getting in exchange for uh, you know making these billions of dollars ends up being pretty fucking low most of the time. Mm -hmm. And so the first team to officially become union will mark a decisive shift towards the correct understanding that student-athletes are workers and that they, like all workers, are entitled to the fruits of their labor. I wonder if, uh, you know, we can't, like, look way into the future when a lot of this stuff is settled and finally get maybe even some reparations for all of the people who were exploited over all of those many, many years. Yeah, I mean, it... Uh, well, there, you know, I will say, a lot of these private universities have some big fucking endowments, and that would be a, a place to start. Mm -hmm. And I mean, obviously, there are reparations that are required in so many other circumstances. But I mean, I think that it, the the um, theory applies here. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's a there's a lot of back pay owed if you start tallying up all of the decades of unpaid uh, college sports. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, let me put it this way: there are a lot of big ass boats that have been bought by the people that own construction firms, who are friends with people who work on the football team and got contracts to build the lavish new training facilities mm -hmm. and other new buildings that got built with money purely gotten from the labor of these unpaid workers. And so, in a statement from their from player representatives Cade Haskins and Romeo uh, Murthel, they announced that with the go ahead for their election. They plan to form the Ivy League Players Association to represent players at all the schools in the league. They said, quote, we believe that other athletes will recognize the opportunities this ruling presents and will be inspired to follow suit. This association aims to foster unity, advocate for athletes' rights and well-being, and create a platform for collaborative decision-making. We look forward to working with our fellow Ivy League athletes to bring positive change to the landscape of college sports and the Ivy League, end quote. And you know what? I think, uh, John, we're not going to, hopefully, 
we're not going to see the answer to your your question about whether or not there's a bigger win rate for union versus non-union because presumably uh, they'll all be union. Yeah, I mean, uh, not great for scientific testing, but uh, tickles me personally. So nothing wrong with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so now I will say, as exciting as this ruling is, Dartmouth is nearly certain to appeal. And that obviously, just like in the Northwestern situation, is one of the strongest tools that schools have to crush union drives by student athletes. Because with appeals taking months or even sometimes years, it's possible for schools to drag the process of labor recognition out so long that students may have graduated or or at least, you know, not may, may not be on the team anymore by the time a ruling is final. It's it's This is just like one of the numerous ways that our system is slanted in favor of the bosses. And so, but at the same time, Again, like I mentioned before, consciousness on this issue has shifted quite a bit with the general public. And the NCAA and the schools, like while they remain adamantly against paying players, uh, the league is currently subject to at least half a dozen antitrust lawsuits because of the fact that they don't compensate their players. And so it seems like only a matter of time before they're forced to stop treating their athletes like slaves. And one thing I, you know, I use that word intentionally because, you know, I, I don't think that it's a coincidence that it's taken this long to get unions in college sports when the two biggest money-making college sports are played primarily by black athletes. Yeah. I think if the two most, uh, well, like the biggest money-maker sports in the country were, say, hockey and baseball, where their sports have primarily white athletes, I think you probably would have seen unions recognized a long time ago. I don't think that there's a coincidence that you see this you know the re- the the reproduction really of of all the racist and, and colonial relations that we see in the broader society in the NCAA relation to so many of these black student athletes. Yeah, I mean I'm going to quote Danny DeVito here. It's a fundamentally racist country built on slavery and genocide. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And what better way to transition into the meme review? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh I mean actually I don't I mean, like, I guess, no, we should, let's reorder these just so that we can make it, keep that, keep that idea going. I'm just going to move this, this one down just a little bit and then boom, now we're, now we're being topical. Right. Yeah. So our first meme says, uh, this black history month, let us remember brother Nathaniel Alexander, inventor of the folding chair. And then it has a photo of Nathaniel Alexander. He invented the folding chair and then a folding chair and then his patent for a folding chair. And then it has the famous scene of a guy wailing on some racist dude on a train stop with the fucking folding chair or a boat. Oh, it's a no, boat. Yeah, That's it's right. Boat, yeah. I'm sorry. I misremembered. Uh, <laughs> some guy tried to get off of a fucking boat that we all saw on Twitter. I don't know why the funniest. Like, look, this is a good meme, but I don't know why the funniest part to me is the fact that it is is, is that it says, uh, you know, let us remember brother Nathaniel Alexander inventing a, inventor of the folding chair, and then says Nathaniel Alexander he invented the folding <laughs> yeah, chair. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good stuff. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, good invention. It reads a too. little bit like a Doctor Steve Brule bit. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because it's it, it. Yeah, it's the same. It's got that same vibe of that Doctor Steve Brule one where he goes to the casino, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's just like, "Who was the first riverboat grambler?" And then he goes <laughs> up to the change machine, and he's like, "This is my favorite." You put in one of paper and get four of coin. <laughs> but in that same vein, is a meme that. The message is extremely uh, dear to my heart. (laughs) 
which is we've got another from the IRL loading screens where you've got the, uh, you know, the, the template from, uh, I think oblivion, um, we've got kind of the sepia tone and you've got a, a, a tan and, 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 and gray scale image with a nice ornate border and then a loading screen below it. And so this a little bit of uh, a little bit of text about, uh, you know, playing the game, right. And so the picture here is uh, a young black gentleman uh, drinking out of a water fountain, which is very prominently labeled white only. And then below it is the, the, the loading screen text, which says, just because something is illegal doesn't mean that it is wrong. And right now is a time to remember that fact uh, very importantly, because mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot going on right now uh, with unjust laws. We've talked about it with teacher strikes. We've talked about it with everything surrounding the complicity of our government in Palestine. Mm-hmm. And I would just say that now is a historical moment where identifying those laws which are just and therefore worth following and those which are unjust and worth breaking is a, a good thing to think about from time to time. Yeah. And then the <laughs> next one that we have is a little bit less serious. Uh, yes. <laughs> just, a, just a bit. <laughs> uh, it's a three panel with uh, a, a photo at the top. The top panel, it, well, it's, it's vertical. So there's panel one where it, says, where it has a photo of uh, Napoleon and it says a man. And then the next panel is will die. And it's got, uh, I believe, probably his casket or something it like is. that. That's from his tomb. I've actually uh-huh. been to his tomb. And the, the th- that's the second panel. And then the third one, it says, but not his ideas. And it's just an image of a Neapolitan ice cream. <laughs> which, <laughs> which I, I feel like this resonated with me because I know that I'm not the only kid who said, oh, yeah, it's Neapolitan ice cream. Yeah. Like, I think that that's a, just like a pretty common thing for for kids to think. And now to find this meme just vindicates the childhood uh, version of my brain that says, "Yeah, that's Neapolitan ice cream." Yeah, well, it's funny because they say like it's it's Neapolitan means from Naples, yes. right? But yes. it's not from fucking Naples. I think it was invented in like you know St. Louis or something like. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, th- I mean that that all honestly is how you know it's an American invention is when it's attributed to somewhere that it has nothing to do with. <laughs> yeah, you, we do that all the fucking time. It's, it's not real Greek to me. It's not real <laughs> Neapolitan ice cream unless it comes from the Neapolitan region of, of Arkansas. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> of, of France, Texas. Um. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, the, I mean, there is a Paris, Texas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that, it's a great movie too. Huh. What's it about? It would be hard to explain. It's just right, really good. Then we it's won't. got Harry Dean Stanton in it. Good time. <laughs> but for our next one, I mean, I'm sure our listeners saw many of the memes out there about the uh the Apple Vision Pro and the please uh please pickpocket me uh goggles that Apple has put out, which look absolutely stupid. Um, and you should please mock anyone you see wearing them. But so the, at least at least thing. two of them were uh, times where there was someone being pulled over uh, by a police yeah. officer because they were in their Tesla in the auto drive mode or something like that. Mm-hmm. That one, my only issue with it is when those people careen off the road, they can hurt other people. If it was just going to get like hurt them, be like, please, I'll encourage you, please keep doing this. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, they are a threat to everyone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but so anyways. That's the introduction of this cats and hard hats meme. 
which is just one of the cats with one of the uh, the Apple Vision Pros on looking extremely excited and captioned, me spending $3,500 to relive the 2001 Creed Thanksgiving halftime show. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is our Super Bowl meme, I guess. <laughs> That's right. Never before has anyone experienced the amazing heights of With Arms Wide Open in full VR. <laughs> I'm just sitting in my work hard hat on the bus on the ride home, screaming at the bus driver, Can you take me higher? <laughs> and then the bus driver goes, <laughs> I cannot believe that a VR headset costs $3,500. No, and especially for like, I said this on Beep Beep recently too, but like don't ever buy the first generation of any new technology ever. I made that mistake with an e-reader once. Wait five years for new technologies <laughs> to get cheaper and better, always. And also... <laughs> These are stupid anyway, but like, you know, if you want them, wait, okay? It's fine. <laughs> I've seen yeah. not a thing this thing can do that a smartphone does not do better. Yeah. Not like just as well, better. <laughs> mm-hmm. I honestly, and the uh, sometimes I think, gosh, it would be interesting to have a video in the meme review because there are just so many absolutely absurd videos of people using these things but we have a cats and hard hats to to portray our disdain That's for right. this mm-hmm. stupid piece of technology but to show our love for our uh comrades we have a wholesome meme here at the end where uh the caption on this is when your squad meets up with another squad at the protest and it's just some really cute kind of like almost what i think it's watercolor painted uh or sketched almost uh cats and penguins just a, a, a little group of of cute kittens and cute penguins and it's just i guess they're meeting up at the protest hell yeah yeah there was a there was actually a um there was a protest that happened, I think, like last year. There was actually like visually just like this. It was, I think, it was like a uh, like reproductive justice march. I think this was in San Francisco. There was like a reproductive justice march and like a trans rights march that ended up like converging at the same time and forging like one super march. And it was just like the most <laughs> wholesome protest. That rocks. Hell yeah. <laughs> Damn, that rocks. Well, that's a great place to leave it for today. We want to thank everyone who supports us and if you would like to support us it means a lot to us as an entirely listener supported show you can do that at patreon.com slash work stoppage you also get access to all of our overtime content and all of the other cool things that is on there uh you can also jump in the discord like i mentioned earlier there's a really great news feed in there also if you'd like to help us out a little bit more regardless of your support as i mean and if you also support us on patreon you can do this you can write us a review somewhere because it allows more people to find the show and that really matters matters because we need more people to be up on this labor news you can follow us in all the places the links are at workstoppagepod.com listen to beep beep lettuce listen to red game table and as always labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever solidarity solidarity everybody
Just to do 